Hello, welcome to This Week in the Atlantic Coast Conference, the podcast for allsportsdiscussion.com. This is Jeff, one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at Talkin' ACC Sports. The podcast moderator is Matthew, and you can follow him at Smash underscore ASD. Now I'm going to turn it over to Matthew as we get a word from our sponsor. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. The podcast is sponsored by Main Street Pharmacy in Blacksburg, Virginia at 301 South Main Street, Suite 107, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. You can follow Main Street Pharmacy on Twitter at, at Main Street Farm. That's at M-A-I-N-S-T-R-E-E-T-P-H-A-R-M. Tonight we have a special guest on the podcast, and joining us is the this week is the National College Football Blogger Matt Zemick, who is also a member of our team at All Sports Discussion, and he is the editor of Trojans Wire. He's been a uh, CFB writer, a college football writer since two thousand one, and you can follow Matt Zemick on Twitter at at Matt. Zemek, that's at M-A-T-T-Z-E-M-E-K. Uh, one thing that's important here, I just want to make sure we talk about this. He's been a podcast guest on our show on multiple occasions. And we are just, we're just thrilled to have him on the show. We're thrilled to have him on the show. And he's all. He's just always been a great, great guest with us. Uh, Trojans Wire is part of the Gannett. Uh, it's part of the Gannett. You, you know, USA Today, Gannett Company, Gannett Corporation collection of newspapers. Jeff, do you see Matt? Matt, Matt, with us yet? Do you see Matt with us yet? And I think we're having some te- technical difficulties. Do you see him here with us? Uh, yeah, I do see Matt, and I just see him connected. He should be on momentarily. Oh, wonderful. Matt, can you hear us, bro? I can hear you guys. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Thank you for coming tonight. We just gave you a great introduction. We're we're thrilled to have you on the show. As you said before, it's just like having it's just it's like the mat we queue up the Masters theme, right? The Masters golf tournament theme. Uh, when, you know, when you're on here at the end of the year, because it kind of signifies the end of end of a college football year. And, you know, just that, you know, you've been with us so many times at the very start of this site, at the very start of this podcast. And you come on at the beginning of the year. You're very generous with your time. And we're, we're thrilled to have you on this show show again, Matt. Matt. So here's the, here's the thing, man. You know, and here's – I'm going to give you a chance to plug – what you're working on right now, where you went to school, where you've been writing in the past, you know, where you wrote in the past. Um, anybody that you want to plug at your site at, at Trojans Wire, which again, you know, we talked about this before, is the is the Gannett Corporation's USA Today USC Trojans athletics content. It's just a really great, really great site. And so we want to give you a chance to plug everybody that's working with you there and anything else that you want to plug, Matt. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Well, I, I, the first thing I have to say is, hello, friends. Because this, this, this is what I feel like Jim Nance and I say, this is a tradition unlike any other. 
you know, de- death, taxes, and Matt Zemeck appearing on the All Sports Discussion podcast on the third Sunday of December, just before Christmas. Like, it's, it's a time-honored tradition. It's become, you know, one of my favorite things that I do each year. So thanks to both of you guys for, for having me back. It's great to be on. So, you know, hey, let me just tell you, I mean, you have an ACC audience. You might, people maybe listening to this podcast for the first time or just maybe listen, listen to it occasionally. Who's this wacko from Trojans Wire? And I just want to say that, you know, we, we cover the Pac-12 as well as USC, and, and that has led to season-long discussion about Mario Cristobal coming to Miami because Mar- Manny Diaz was on the hot seat fairly early in the season, and so Mario Cristobal, for, as soon as Manny Diaz got on the hot seat, Mario Cristobal leaving Oregon became a plot point. Now, I never thought it was likely, but um, if throughout the year, that was a, that was, it was within the range of possibility because Miami was always the one non-Alabama job that Mario Cristobal would consider. And it's a really interesting plot twist, guys, that uh, the producer for the Trojans Wired podcast that I do, it's called Trojans Wired with a D, um, my producer is from South Florida. He's a Miami alum. So he, like, he was able to keep me abreast of all the developments on the ground in Coral Gables, the internal politics. And so, you know, after USC hired Lincoln Riley in late November, that producer, his name's Ian Hess, uh, he said, whoa, like game done changed. Like Miami might now really consider Mario Cristobal because of, you know, how USC's uh, hire of Lincoln Riley changed the game. So like all season long, we've been talking about um, Mario Cristobal and Miami. We've also talked about Dave Clawson, not as a top tier USC candidate, but as the kind of the, uh, the, can- the candidate if, you know, Luke Fickle and James Franklin and Matt Campbell and then Dave Aranda, you know, if they all said no, well, maybe Clawson would be, you know, kind of the, 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 the fifth or sixth candidate that USC considers. So it's really fascinating how my work at USC and Trojans Wire has had some very definite intersections with the ACC this year. And just to kind of put a, an exclamation point on this, uh, gentlemen, um, no one cared about USC football on the field this season. You know, it, it's really one of the most extraordinary seasons I've covered for any team because, like, the readership did not want to know about, you know, oh, this receiver had a good game or the, the defensive line had a bad game. It was, you know, we need Clay Helton out now. And, and sure enough, he got fired in, after week two. Terrible lo- blowout loss at home to Stanford. And so we had the very unusual situation of like the whole season was a coaching search and that's all anybody cared about. And moreover, it was legitimate for USC fans to only care about the coaching coaching search because it was clear two weeks in that the team wasn't going to amount to anything. So all that mattered was getting the coaching hire right to get the program back on sound footing. And in late November, you know, Thanksgiving Day, Thanksgiving Friday, the days before Lincoln Riley was hired, no one saw this coming. I didn't see it coming, but no one at USC saw it coming. No one nationally saw it coming. The buzz was around Matt Campbell, but it's just like USC played boring games this year. I mean, USC got blown out by Stanford, blown out by Utah, blown out by Oregon State, blown out by UCLA, blowout, blowout, blowout. 
uh, and it was just the most dull and uninteresting season. And when you compare that with a two and a half month, uh, or compare when you combine it with a two and a half month long coaching search, it's just the most unusual season ever. No one wanted to know about football on the field. It was all about the coaching search. And so interestingly, like I was keeping tabs on the ACC. I also wrote a Trojans Wire piece. Uh, Matt, you know this, that uh, I wrote about, you know, hey, Justin Fuente might make a really good offensive coordinator for the Trojans. You know, not a head coach, of course, but an offensive coordinator, a play caller. Um, you know, that could be really good. Uh, so it's just fascinating how I'm over here in the West, you're over there in the East, and yet this season I was interested in the ACC precisely for all the coaching carousel plot points that came out of that conference. It was a really uh, unusual year. But uh, myself and staff writers Matt Wadley and Zach Pearson, those two guys do a great job helping me along at Trojans Wire. And we still have all these uh, soap, soap operatic elements at USC. We just had, uh, and Jeff knows this, that Tashard Choice, you know, he, he, was, he was on USC's staff for a hot minute, pretty much as long as George O'Leary was the head coach at Notre Dame. Uh, and then, uh, and then he go, uh, abruptly shifts and goes to Sart, uh, over at Texas. Just, you know, the young and the restless days of our lives, general hospital, those soap operas have nothing on the Tasher choice drama. Uh, I'd be interested in Jeff's thoughts on that. But once again, you know, a Georgia tech, uh, coach having an interaction with USC and Lincoln Riley, it, it's just amazing how national college football is you never know what intersections you're going to have with teams and conferences across the country i'm out here at usc and and uh yet there's been so many interesting uh stories to follow in the pac-12 uh related to what's gone on in the acc and the, the crystal ball going from oregon to miami was kind of the main thing but there are so many other plot points so it's really been a fascinating journey for me at trojans wire but you know with real world relevance to the ACC and ACC football in 2021. Definitely, definitely. So let's get right to it, Matt. Let's get right to it. Let's review the ACC football season for 2021. Uh, who would you say is your most impressive ACC team of the year? And who is your most disappointing ACC team of the year? The floor is yours. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a fairly simple call that, you know, the, whoever won the ACC championship game was going to be uh, the most impressive team of the year, and that, and that became Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, it was an absolute shootout in the first 15 to 20 minutes, but then Pittsburgh's defensive line started uh, kicking butt and taking names. And so, you know, the thing we had just have to realize is that whoever won that game was going to be an 11-win team. And, you know, you, I don't have to explain to you or your audience on the All Sports Discussion ACC Weekly Podcast that, you know, we've seen our share of Coastal Division champions who were 8-5 and five or, or, or even Pittsburgh a few years ago, not this year, but a few years ago, was 7-5 uh, and five, uh, entering, entering the ACC title game and finished the year 7-7 seven and seven with a bowl loss uh, in the Sun Bowl. Uh, so, you know, we've seen, you know, below average or average Coastal Division champions, but this is not the case. This was uh, Pittsburgh winning the Coastal and then winning the ACC going 11-2. and two. So you have to say that it's Pittsburgh uh, with Wake Forest uh, being second. 
I mean, other teams, you know, had encouraging seasons, uh, to be sure. Uh, you know, uh, I, now Louisville didn't have a great season, but Louisville was better, I think, than some people expected. Louisville did make some uh, degree of improvement. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it ultimately, and, and North Carolina State, you know, almost got over the hump, but of course, almost, not quite. Uh, so there were some other interesting stories uh, around the conference, but you have to give it to Pittsburgh. That Pittsburgh uh, didn't slip on the banana peel more than once. There was the loss to Miami at home, but other than that, like Pitt then steadied the ship, didn't keep stepping on a rake the way we've seen Pitt do so many times in the past. Uh, the defense stumbled in the first quarter against Wake in Charlotte, but then steadied the ship. So. You know, Pat Narduzzi made the most of his resources this particular year. Now, of course, most of that was due to Kenny Pickett being the, in my mind, the clear ACC player of the year and a deserved Heisman Trophy finalist. But nevertheless, like he, Narduzzi had a good situation and he didn't mess it up. So you have to give him credit for that. So, so Pittsburgh's the team of the year. Wake Forest second. Uh, you, you could, you know, have some interesting debates about third or fourth, but like those are the top two. And Pittsburgh's clearly number one. So let's 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 go on the flip side here. Who's your most disappointing ACC team? Well, you know we have this is a Baskin Robbins answer. We have, we have so many different flavors of disappointment, um, but you know there are two main flavors of disappointment. Like the, there's chocolate disappointment and there's vanilla disappointment. So uh, let's start with vanilla. You know, ordinary disappointment, kind of disappointment that we're used to. That's North Carolina. You know, Mac Brown. Uh, you know, he, he's able to sell uh, snow to Eskimos. He's an amazing recruiter. He's still pulling in recruits in Chapel Hill. But, you know, it's like Ron Zook with Florida back in the day. Can you coach him up? It's also like Penny Hardaway with Memphis basketball. You can recruit who ha however many players and however many five stars you want, but you got to coach him up. And Mac Brown could not coach him up this year. So we're very used to seeing North Carolina – uh, slip on a banana peel. So that's the vanilla disappointment. But over in the chocolate disappointment, kind of the luxury high-end level of disappointment, it has to be Clemson. You know, Clemson had this amazing standard year after year after year after year. And, uh, you know, it, this doesn't make Dabo Swinney a bum, but it does mean that he lost his edge and he has to figure out, and I'm sure Jeff would agree here, uh, he has to figure out the transfer portal and no matter how much uh, Dabo might whine and complain about the transfer portal and having to, to deal with that particular part of this new world in college football, he can whine and complain, but he needs to work it. You know, he need, that's part of his job. That's part of any coach's job. Um, so, you know, he, Dabo, he's smart enough to know what kinds of adjustments he needs to make uh, to get Clemson back on track. But for one year, he really let things slip. He wasn't particularly attentive, and now we get to find out. This is, I mean, you know, obviously we have a lot more to discuss about 2021, but just briefly, looking ahead to 2022, it's going to be very interesting, you know, one way or the other. It's going to be interesting to see what Dabo does now that Brent Venables is at Oklahoma, now that Tony Elliott is, is no longer on his staff, you know, coaching at Virginia. So what does Dabo do without these coordinators that he has come to rely on so much? So... 2021, an obvious big disappointment for Clemson. Uh, you know, DJ Uyangalele, uh, you know, he, when he played so well in that 2020 Notre Dame game, 
I mean, we all thought, or I'm sure most people thought, all right, this guy is going to be the heir apparent to Trevor Lawrence. Clemson's not going to miss a beat. And then, wow, he just he had the yips for so much of 2021. Uh, you know, very unanticipated development, which hijacked much of Clemson's season, wasted the effort of a very good defense under Venables. Uh, so, you know, obviously Clemson's a disappointment for 2021, but if, if the program and Dabo learn from it next year, you know, then that, that could actually be like a growth point, which helps Clemson to remain a long-term factor. In other words, the program will use the, the, the suffering in 2021 as a reminder, hey, this is not something to be taken for granted. We have to re-earn our place in the ACC and across the nation every single year. So North Carolina wins the, Villano- the, the vanilla disappointment and Clemson wins the chocolate disappointment. Two different flavors of disappointment in 2021. Very good take. Very good take. Matt, uh, Matt, Jeff is up now. So Jeff, the four. All right. Thanks, Matthew. And, you know, to your, to your point, Matt, about Dabo Sweeney, I, I think everything that you said uh, is true. I, I think he was caught uh, sleeping at the wheel just a little bit, maybe, and, you know, not necessarily in, intentionally, but I, I think he definitely did miss the boat um, on the transfer portal. But uh, like you said, I mean, he's he's a really smart uh, coach. He doesn't get enough uh, credit for that. And um, it looks like it only took him one season to say, all right, um, I'm going to fall behind the rest of college football and embrace the transfer portal. Because um, it definitely some of the statements he's made over the last couple of weeks make it sound like, you know, he's 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 never going to be one of those guys that probably takes like 10, 10 transfers. You know, he's going to get guys that he thinks can fit. Uh, Clemson and and he made a really good point this week uh, about if you're in the transfer portal, you're probably there because you weren't getting playing time. And if you weren't getting playing time at your the school you were at, you're probably not going to get playing time at at Clemson. But you know that that might be the majority of the people in the transfer portal. But you know we've seen over the past year there have been some really talented players in the portal, and uh, I, th- I think you'll see Dabo make that adjustment. And, and he's made statements. Uh, that he'll he'll be using the portal. So it it took him. He was a little bit behind the wheel on this one, or asleep at the wheel. But uh, looks like he's he's on board now. It only it only took him a year to realize, like, oh, okay, I be, I better get on the board with the rest of college football. Absolutely, and and you know, just I know you're going to ask me a question, but but before you do, just let's point out the parallel that uh, you know Nick Saban he had a little bit of a rut too uh, in 2013. You know, Auburn beat him. Uh, Alabama didn't even win the SEC West. Uh, And then in 2014, Alabama uh, lost to Ohio State in the playoff semifinals. Didn't even make uh, the national championship game. And that was the period of time when Saban was grumbling about, you know, is this what we want football to be with the modern offense and all that? And, and, you know, we we know he, he, he would prefer to play the way Kirby Smart does at Georgia. But he realized uh, seven years ago that I can't continue to play man ball. I can't continue to play football the way I've known it for the past few decades in the SEC. I have to embrace modern offense. I have to win games 52-46 instead of 16-10. And that's why he stayed on top of the mountain. So like Nick Saban, he had his uh, come-to-Jesus moment. He was willing to embrace the modernity instead of remaining anchored in the past. That's why he's the best in the business 
So Dabo isn't carrying that same challenge now at Clemson. Yep, great points there, Matt. Uh, all right, Matt. Um, back as we look at ACC f- uh, football from this past year, who was your ACC football coach of the year, and who's on the hot seat for 2022? Yeah, so here's the thing. And, and when I do uh, like coach of the year, team of the year, player of the year, et cetera, I try to balance things out. So what I mean is if I think that a coach really, really lifted his team uh, to, the, to the highest level uh, and I'm going to give him coach of the year, then you know I have to look at another team and say, well, that's the player of the year. So like you're never going to see me – well, maybe not never, but like 99 times out of 100, you're not going to see me give coach of the year and player of the year to the same team because either either the coach kind of you know overachieved with the talent he had, in which case the team gets coach of the year, or a player you know bailed out the coach or the the player made the coach look good, but you so you're not going to get both to line up on the same side. So I think you can can decipher where I'm going with all this. So if, if um, I think I already said that Penny, Kenny Pickett, you know, was the player of the year in the ACC, definitely worthy uh, of being the, a Heisman Trophy finalist. So if he's the player of the year, I can't give coach of the year to Pat Narduzzi. You know, that, so that was a case of a player lifting a team to a great height. It doesn't mean Narduzzi did a bad job. It just means he doesn't get the number one placement among ACC coaches. So this is where I have to go to Wake Forest and Dave Clawson. I know that uh, Sam Hartman had a great year too, but you know, it's Wake Forest, it's Winston-Salem, and, and, and that's not any disrespect to Wake or the city of Winston-Salem. It's just, you know, this is a cozy little enclave. It's not a, a sprawling metropolis. You know, it's not like Atlanta with Georgia Tech uh, or Miami. Um, you know, it, this is a, this is a relatively smaller school without the heavyweight resources of, say, Clemson, North Carolina, uh, and the other schools I've mentioned. And you know, so for Dave Clawson to get Wake a, a division championship, uh, and I know that North Carolina State beat Clemson, Wake did not. I know that some of our Wolfpack friends, uh, you know, might uh, you know sh- shudder or or uh, recoil at the the, the uh, voting of. Clawson as coach of the year, but he, he really does do more with less. You know, that, that's been his steady identity, uh, and uh, he, he really uh, maxed out with that this particular year. Uh, so, so, you know, if you're going to say that Kenny Pickett's the player of the year, the guy who made everything possible for Pittsburgh, Dave Clawson's the guy who made things possible for the Demon Deacons. Now, on the, on the flip side of this, Coaches on the hot seat, well, Jeff, I mean, we obviously have to start with Jeff Collins. There's no doubt about that. One could certainly make the argument that he already should have been canned and that the Yellow Jackets, by sticking with him, are already losing goodwill and trust uh, among their fan base. But, you know, Collins is obviously number one, very clearly, among ACC hot seat coaches uh, entering 2022. And then you also have to have Scott Satterfield, who, you know, didn't do a terrible job this year. I mean, you know, Louisville did need to improve, and, and the Cardinals were better to some degree. They did make a bowl game. But, you know, Satterfield, after that first season, which was so good, it really seemed as though his career was going to take off. And certainly Louisville fans are not going to keep uh, putting up with, you know, 6-6 six and six 
you know, average seasons. That's not why they hired him. Now, I realize that Louisville continue to, continues to have uh, administrative tumult, but um, by the time we get to the start of the 2022 season, you know, if he doesn't deliver, uh, I, I just can't see the power brokers uh, at Louisville being uh, particularly patient with Satterfield. Like, you know, he, he made some improvements this year, but he really needs to raise the bar in 2022. So he's definitely going to be on the hot seat there. Now, here's the most controversial one. Mike Norvell now at Florida State. Now, let, let, let's just say this. I think Florida State will win at least seven games, maybe eight next year. The recruiting's definitely very good. Even with that, uh, you know, the, the, the Deion Sanders Jackson State coach, uh, which, which had a lot of people up in arms, uh, Florida State's class is still top 20. And so the recruits are coming in. Now, I will say that, you know, for Florida State fans who say, like, this is the obvious, Norvell obviously has two more years. I'm going to push back against that. If he, if he has another mediocre year in 2022, I think that's it. I mean, if, if he goes five and seven, in 2022, I think he's gone. Now, some Florida State fans will say, no, he has two years no matter what. But here's the thing. You can't say the recruiting's great, the recruiting's great, the recruiting's great. Give him time, give him time. And he keeps delivering five-win seasons. You can't play it both ways. If the recruiting really is as great as the, the numbers and the ratings seem to be, Norvell has to be winning seven to eight games sooner rather than later. So here's the thing. I think Norvell wins seven or eight games, which would remove him from the hot seat. But that doesn't mean he's not on the hot seat as 2022 begins. I think he begins the year on the hot seat. And then, you know, if he wins, that'll take care of itself and he'll be fine. And he can settle into the job, gain a foothold, uh, and be the coach that a lot of Florida State fans think he can become. But until he gets to those seven or eight wins in 2022, he is on the hot seat. He will be entering the 2022 season on the hot seat. So that's going to be a fascinating drama uh, to watch. And then Dino Babers. Uh, you, you would think that, you know, this thing has run out of momentum and that the 10-win season in 2018 was maybe not a fluke, but certainly an aberration, certainly an isolated instance. Uh, so... You know, you know, you would think that Syracuse would have to do something if Syracuse has another really bad season. Are they just going to continue to eat these subpar seasons? Uh, or are they going to finally do something about their football program? So we had a lot of ACC coaching changes, but plenty of hot seats entering 2022 for sure. All right. Good stuff, Matt. Um Matt, give us your thoughts on all the coaching changes in the Coastal Division. You look at the Coastal Division in 2022, you're going to have four new coaches. You're going to have uh, a coach with an ACC title in Pat Narduzzi, a coach with a national championship back from his Texas days in Mac Brown, and um, Jeff Collins. <laughs> I'm sorry for you, buddy. That's pretty funny. Jeff always puts that in there and says, like, you know, he <laughs> – he said, "He says like you've got a, somebody who won the ACC title, some somebody who was won a national title and is a great recruiter. And then you got a bunch of coaching changes, and then oh yeah, there's Jeff Collins and George." Yeah, it's such. It's, it, we need the prices right, sad trombone, right? <laughs> boom, 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 wow. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, Jeff, I, I I feel for you uh, because I 
if I was uh, Georgia Tech's AD, I would have fired uh, Collins. Um, but, well, I'm, I'm not Georgia Tech's AD. So, but anyway, um, I, you know, all four of the Coastal Division coaching changes were quality moves in my mind. Um, I think that, you know, rating them one to four, uh, you know, I think Duke and Miami were a little bit better than uh, Virginia Tech and, and Virginia. But Virginia Tech and Virginia, I think, made good hires. Uh, I think that, you know, Brent Pry at Virginia Tech seems like a really natural fit, someone who understands uh, what it takes to coach in Blacksburg. Uh, it seems, you know, he, he's the head coach, but, you know, he could, he could cultivate kind of a Bud Foster mentality uh, on defense. That's always good if you're a Hokie. And then Tony Elliott gets his shot at a head coaching job and when you consider that, uh, uh, you know, some of the other candidates that were kicked around at Virginia, uh, I, you know, you know com- compared to the alternatives, certainly Tony Elliott is a pretty decent uh, landing spot, uh, a pretty good uh, ultimate outcome uh, for the Hoos. Uh, you know, I think Tony Elliott, you know, he just he gets his chance. He gets his big break. So, you know, we'll see what he's made of. But obviously, when you when you have the body of experience that he has, that's certainly a, a situation where he has a chance to be very good. So I think that, that Virginia Tech and Virginia and the Commonwealth both did very well, but I think Miami and, and Duke did better. I think Mike Elko uh, is a very impressive hire for Duke. I, I, I think Duke exceeded a lot of people's expectations. Uh, you're aware that Jason Garrett was in the rumor mill for Duke. That would have been a disaster. So it's not just compared to Garrett, but also just on its own terms. I mean, Elko has experience coaching in the ACC. It was a Wake Forest assistant not too long ago. Uh, and, of course, his work at Notre Dame, that meant he was game planning for ACC opponents five times a year. Um, and so now he leaves Jimbo Fisher's staff. I mean, that that is just a quality pull. I, I'm impressed that Duke's uh, – uh, AD was able to have that kind of vision and go raid Jimbo Fisher's staff. Uh, I, you know, and I'm, I would like, I would think that Elko is going to give Duke uh, a, a cons- Oh, did we lose you there, Matt? Mario Cristobal was a clear-cut success at Oregon. Now, he wasn't a home run hitter. Like, he didn't dominate the conference, but he was a success. You know, he won, he won the Pac-12 two years in a row, made the Pac-12 championship game three years in a row. He won a Rose Bowl. That's a success. Now, he didn't stay around long enough to build a, a bigger legacy at Oregon, and he didn't have, you know, really dominant uh, 12 or 13 win seasons. But Oregon did become the best program in the Pac-12 when Mario Cristobal was there. And Cristobal took over from Willie Taggart, whom we all know well in the ACC, having uh, seen him at Florida State. And Cristobal was a dramatic improvement over what Willie Taggart did uh, at Oregon. Cristobal built Oregon back, uh, you know, revived the program after a lull of several years. You know, when, once Marcus Mariota left, after taking Oregon to the national title game in 2014, then it all went downhill under Mark Helfrich uh, and then under Taggart. 
So Cristobal built all of that back. He recruited at an elite level. So you have to think that certainly on the recruiting side at Miami, uh, Cristobal is going to do extremely well. But what's the knock on Mario Cristobal? It's the in-game coaching, the game management. You'll remember that Oregon had a late lead against Stanford a few years ago, and all Oregon had to do was take a knee. But Cristobal handed the ball off. Oregon fumbled. Stanford drove downfield and scored. Uh, other, uh, you know, timeout management is also a problem with Cristobal. And, of course, his offense, you know, his offensive approach. Uh, he wanted to be pure smash mouth at Oregon, but, you know, he had Justin Herbert in 2019, and, and uh, the Oregon offense was having Justin Herbert throw a lot of uh, screen passes. And that's why a lot of uh, NFL draft analysts thought that Herbert was not going to be an excellent NFL quarterback. It's not so much they disliked uh, Herbert himself, but they didn't get to see him let her rip. You know, or Oregon and Cristobal kept Herbert under wraps, and Oregon suffered at the quarterback position this past season with Anthony Brown. Uh, it was impressive what Oregon did to Ohio State because Oregon didn't throw any downfield passes against the Buckeyes. Uh, for anyone who remembers that game, Oregon was playing that whole game on offense in like a 15-yard box, uh, running the ball mostly, but then when it did throw passes, it was just short passes in the flats, nothing downfield. Oregon was just able to mash with its offensive line against that soft Ohio State defensive front, which got bulldozed by Michigan a few months later. So, you know, Cristobal won that game with man ball, basically, you know, the Kirby Smart style of play. And, you know, in modern football, like you can go nine and three, ten and three with man ball, generally. You know, if you're Georgia and you're Kirby and you're so physically dominant, you can win every game you play except against Alabama. Uh, but, but generally, just doing man ball, just doing smash mouth, that usually lowers your ceiling. It lowers uh, your, your range of potential. So the whole key at Miami with Cristobal is, you know, who's his offensive coordinator? I don't think he's hired his offensive coordinator yet, unless I'm mistaken. But like, he really needs to embrace, kind of like what I talked about earlier with Nick Saban, you know, who used to be uh, Cristobal's boss. Uh, Cristobal was a Saban assistant for a while at Alabama. Uh, Cristobal needs to embrace modern offense. Now, he'll have Tyler Van Dyke. That should really help, but he really needs a sharp, elite offensive play caller to really make that Miami offense come alive. And if he settles for a mediocre offensive coordinator, you know that will limit uh, his amount of potential at Miami. So I would say right now, just right now, subject to change, right now it's Duke 1, Miami 2, Virginia Tech three, Virginia four, but all very good hires. But if Crystal Ball hires the right offensive coordinator, then you could say that Miami leapfrogs Duke uh, among all these ACC Coastal Division coaching changes. All right, um, uh, Matt, let's look at at the postseason here for the ACC, and we're going to call this our uh, um, our lightning round edition as we go through the ACC's bowl games and and get your quick thought on. Um, you know, who's going to win that game and you're feeling on the game. So we can start out with uh, on Monday, December 27th, Boston College versus East Carolina. Well, you know, Jeff Hapley didn't have a chance to field his best team this year. So I think with a few weeks to get healthy, that's a great spot for, for Boston College against ECU. I think Boston College wins. 
Okay, uh, then we'll go on to uh, Tuesday, December 28th. We've got the first responder bowl, Air Force versus Louisville. And then later that day, uh, this is actually a pretty intriguing matchup, a little Pac-12 ACC matchup between UCLA and NC State. Yeah, uh, I like Air Force over Louisville. I think Scott Satterfield has to prove to me and, of course, to people at UL and throughout the ACC that his program is really headed in the right direction. Air Force has a good, tough defense. Uh, it was not easy to score on Air Force usually. Now, Utah State exploited Air Force's defense, but most Mountain West teams did not really uh, fare all that well against Air Force. So, I don't, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to express some skepticism toward Louisville, and I'm going to pick Air Force to win that game. And then UCLA-NC State, uh, for ACC folks who uh, you know uh, have been following the Holiday Bowl over the years, this is going to be at Petco Park. You know, Jack Murphy Stadium, later named Qualcomm Stadium, the longtime home of the Holiday Bowl since that bowl began in 1978. Uh, that stadium was imploded, so it's now Petco Park for the next few years, so the home of the Padres, so that's going to give a different visual uh, dimension to this game. But, uh, you know, this is a huge game for NC State. We've been here before. You know, NC State had that uh, Gator Bowl against Texas A&M a few years ago. And, you know, Wolfpack fans, hey, I mean, like, you know the drill. You don't need the explanation here. But, like, you have that almost great season. Not quite. You know, just missed the division title. Just missed the conference championship game. So if you're going to make your season a real success, hey, you need to deliver the goods here. NC State didn't do that against A&M in that Gator Bowl a few years ago. So we'll see about this year. And Chip Kelly at UCLA, the, you know, watching the Bruins out here in the Pac-12 as I have, Hasn't figured out that defense, so I, I am looking for a big, big night from Devin Leary, and I'm taking NC State in that game. All right, as we move on to Wednesday, December 29th, we've got three ACC bowl games that day. Uh, the Wasabi Fenway Bowl, SMU versus Virginia. Uh, then the Pinstripe Bowl, little well, it was like a it was an old ACC matchup for a few years there, anyways. Uh, Maryland and Virginia Tech, and then uh, at 5:45 that day, you've got um, Clemson playing Iowa State in in the first game for Dabo Sweeney. What you talked about earlier, see how he handles uh, his first game without Brent Venables and Tony Elliott. Yeah. So one thing to note about the, uh, these bowl games that you've mentioned on uh, Wednesday, uh, December 29th. Notice that you have in the in the late morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, and then the, the game after that at 2.15 Eastern, you have a game in the home of the Red Sox, and then you have a game in the home of the Yankees. You know, Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium hosting back-to-back -back bowl games. I just found that really, really fascinating. So in the Fenway Bowl, SMU Virginia, well, first off, if there's not at least 90 points in this game, you know, it would feel like a disappointment. Like this... This should be the ultimate super-duper shootout of the bowl games. And, uh, you know, Brennan Armstrong, you know that he was injured for a little bit, wasn't able to play its best. And then, of course, you know, scoring just 24 points against Virginia Tech, <laughs> just a massive letdown uh, for Virginia in that game. So I think Virginia is going to score an absolute truckload of points and probably will be able to beat SMU, which has undergone a coaching change uh, with Sonny Dykes leaving for rival TCU. I think Virginia is going to be happier 
to play in this game, and Virginia's gonna, just going to score an absolute pile of points and win that game. Maryland-Virginia Tech, you know, I think it's a great draw for the Hokies, right? I mean, you know, Maryland uh, just barely slid into full position, um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not really a believer in Mike Loxley with the Terps, so I'm going to take Virginia Tech in this game. I think that the Hokies coming off their win uh, for the Commonwealth Cup, uh, they're they're gonna they're gonna come out and they're gonna kick some teeth. They're gonna play a very physical game and they will subdue an inferior Maryland squad. Clemson, Iowa State. Now that this is a you know Dabo against Matt Campbell and you know Matt Campbell had could have taken other jobs if he had wanted them, but he seems to be set on staying put in Ames. So that has to thrill everybody at Iowa State. Uh, I got to lean with Iowa State here. I mean, I know that Clemson's had a month off and and Clemson's defense is very good and is going to play a solid game, but Iowa State just has a massive advantage at quarterback uh, unless or until I see DJ Uyangalele really prove himself and really, you know, graduate to a to a higher level of performance and consistency. I have to doubt Clemson's ability to score enough win that game. So I'm going to go with Iowa State in the Cheez-It Bowl. And the Cheez-It Bowl, by the way, now in Orlando. The, the, the Cheez-It Bowl was in here in Phoenix, where I am. It's now in Orlando. It's kind of confusing with the game having the same name, but moving to uh, an entirely different part of the country. All right. So now on Thursday, we've got uh, two ACC Bowl games. You've got, you know, you've already talked to them, uh, talked about them being you know, the ACC's most disappointing team uh, this year, North Carolina, playing a program, football program, that's used to being disappointed, uh, South Carolina. And then later in the day, uh, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, uh, Michigan State versus Pittsburgh. And, and on paper, a couple weeks ago, this looked like such a fun matchup. And it, it's still a good matchup, but now the game's going to be without Michigan State running back Kenneth Walker or Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh. So two two of the biggest stars in this game are not going to be in this one. Yeah, not much to say about the Peach Bowl, which has been pitted, right? Uh, and and so with with uh, Walker and Pickett both out, certainly takes away the luster. And of course, Pickett is such a nerve center for the Panthers. He is their most important player. So I have to pick Michigan State there, but that's no verdict on the Panthers. Like they're, they, they were all, all their hopes depended on Kenny Pickett playing and playing well. Uh, and then North Carolina, South Carolina. Now, you know, South Carolina got Spencer Rattler in the transfer portal. I think if Spencer Rattler was playing this game for the Gamecocks, I might take them, but he's not. So I think North Carolina, after a very disappointing regular season, this, is, this sets up as a game where I think the Tar Heels take out their frustrations. Uh, on the Gamecocks. I also think that, you know, if you're a North Carolina football player, you're looking at the basketball team, you know, play with no effort against Kentucky. That, that has to make you upset, right? If you're a Tar Heel, it's not really a good time to be a Tar Heel. So I think there's going to be a lot of anger vented by the Tar Heels against South Carolina, and they're going to win big uh, on December 30th. All right, then we go to uh, Friday, December 31st for the last two ACC Bowl games, Wake Forest versus Texas A&M in the Gator Bowl. And last time out when these two played just a, a few a few years ago, Wake Forest knocked off Texas A&M. Uh, and then you have the 
Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, another Pac-12 ACC matchup with Washington State versus Miami. Yeah, so with Wake Forest against Texas A&M, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Wake, Wake Forest is going to be really excited about this game. And, of course, you know, there's the Mike Elko angle. Now, you know, he's now at, at, at Duke, but Elko had a connection to each of these two programs as defensive coordinator in, in recent years. So that's kind of fascinating. But I think that Wake Forest is going to view this as a real opportunity to prove itself, whereas Texas A&M, you know, remember, you, you will remember, both of you, that Texas A&M soaked through that Orange Bowl a few years ago against North Carolina, was able to drag itself over the finish line in the fourth quarter, but really performed poorly for the first three quarters of this game. Uh, so, you know, does A&M have more talent? Yes, but I think Wake Forest uh, is going gonna, is gonna to play a much better game. So give me the Demon Deacons here. Uh, meanwhile, A&M can pay Jimbo Fisher $10 million more million uh, for the privilege. Uh, and then in the Sun Bowl, you might recall that this is a rematch of the 2015 Sun Bowl. It was Miami. It was Washington State in El Paso. Uh, and it snowed that day. And uh, Miami predictably did not know how to handle that particular situation. So, you know, that game's still a few, uh, a few weeks out. But uh, I would just say if the weather is nice and sunny and mild, that's, that's really going to favor Miami. But if it's snowy or rainy and nasty, uh, Washington State with, you know, Jake Dickert. Jake Dickert is the now permanent head coach. He was the interim after Nick Rolovich got fired midseason. Uh, Dickert did a great job with the Washington State defense, uh, guided the Cougars to a win over Washington in the Apple Cup. So that secured him as the permanent head coach. So I really think I'm not going to pick a, a direct winner. I'm going to say look at the weather report. Uh, for that particular game. Nice Miami, not nice Washington State. All right, uh, Matt, um, let's look at the college football playoff now. Um, give us your thought on the selections this year. You know, how do you feel about the committee's job? Did, was there any team that got snubbed? Um, is there any criteria out there that needs to be improved for selecting teams? And, you know, I, I had an issue with 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 Georgia not being more scrutinized as one of the four. Yes, you know, they were ranked number one throughout the course of the season, but at the end of the day, when they played the best team on their schedule, they were smoked by Alabama. And, you know, their resume and, and this is a, a resume that has been, you know, beat up when it when it's Clemson or when it was Florida State in two thousand uh, 13 or, or a number of other teams, but Georgia didn't beat a top 15 team the entire year. Their best win this season was against the fourth place team in the ACC. And I don't, I don't think that got scrutinized nearly enough. Um, and then, you know, as we get into what could be possible expansion, do you think the field is too small as it is? Yeah, so, hey, we've had this discussion. We have it every December when I come on your show. And, you know, it's, it, I just go back to this point, and it's just worth repeating so that people realize it. This is less about, you know, the given year, the current year. It's much more about going back to the first year of the playoff, 2014. And so many of us who follow college football for a living uh, were, were saying, just give us a clear criteria set of criteria right give us the hierarchy of priorities like conference championship is the first priority number of losses is the second priority whatever give us a clear 
set of priorities because that means everyone has the same roadmap and is operating on the same page, looking at the same uh, owner's manual, if you will. But remember, we never got that clear set of criteria in 2014. It was all ad hoc. It was all shifting the goalposts to meet the needs of ESPN and the situation. It was all about television. It was all about drama. You know, the, the, that first year when the playoff was brand new, like I took each weekly rankings show very seriously. It's like, oh, this is the process or, oh, this is the precedent that's being set. This is the framework that's being established. That first year, I was watching all the weekly shows. And I remember in the penultimate show before conference championship weekend, I remember TCU being number three. So that told me, okay, so if TCU is number three and TCU takes care of business, TCU is in. Like that was the message being sent by that ranking of TCU at number three before the final weekend of the 2014 regular season. And what happens? TCU did not stumble. TCU did not play poorly. It beat Iowa State by 52 points. So, okay, TCU's number three wins its game by 52 points. So, now that told me, what, I, what that also told me was the Big 12 Conference Championship didn't matter, right? TCU lost to Baylor. Baylor, with a win over Kansas State that final weekend in 2014, was going to win the Big 12 Championship. But if you were rating TCU number three, that showed me, well, okay, I guess the Conference Championship doesn't mean much. But then what happens? So TCU beats Iowa State by 52. Baylor wins the Big 12 title. But then Ohio State crushes Wisconsin. And I know Ohio State did crush Wisconsin. Looked very impressive. But TCU was ahead of Ohio State and won by 52. And TCU dropped not one spot from three to four for seeding purposes, which you could you know justify because TCU would still be in there. No, TCU dropped from three to six, despite winning a game by 52 points. Now, let's just stop there. Stop and ask yourself how many times a team wins a game by 52 points and drops three spots. Never happens for Alabama. Never happens for Oklahoma. Never happens for Ohio State. Oh, but it happened to, happened to TCU? So what did, what did that tell us seven years ago, first year of the playoff? It told us, this is all for TV, it's all theater, it's all playing with our emotions, it's just a TV show, it did, did not have any objective, consistent, regular, sustained criteria. So as soon as that, that first playoff reveal happened with Ohio State leapfrogging both TCU and Baylor, and TCU falling three spots despite winning a game by 52 points, that just told me this is a BS process, you know, free of objectivity. It's not really a scientific or you know, a kind of a project with clear and observable criteria that every program can follow. It, it certainly wasn't a set of standards which applies to every program equally. It was an obvious television move to get Ohio State into the playoff against Alabama because Ohio State would provide much, much, much better TV ratings for ESPN against Alabama than TCU or Baylor would have. And so ever since then, guys, ever since then, I don't care about any of the weekly shows. I don't really trust the legitimacy of the process. 
Like that first year just ruined everything. It ruined everything about the playoff. It had to get things right that first year, but it was very clear as soon as that first uh, playoff quartet was revealed seven years ago that this is all about generating ratings and dollars for ESPN. That's it. And we keep seeing that. And, you know, ESPN said, whoa, well, Cincinnati and the group of five got in. Well, only because it was impossible to leave Cincinnati out. If Cincinnati had not beaten Notre Dame, if Cincinnati's 12th win or 13th win had been against, let's say, oh, you know, like, let's just say, like Wake Forest, all right? Uh, You know, would Cincinnati be in with, with Notre Dame sitting there with one loss? I don't think so. You know, if Cincinnati, one one commentator, Noah Trister, he's an Associated Press sports writer, very sharp, very wise. He said, well, if you're a group of five team that wants to make the college football playoff, we now know the formula. Go unbeaten and beat the number five team head to head. Like, like, like that is a foolproof scenario. Like you will, you will always get in as a group of five team. If you go 13 and 0 and you happen to beat your foremost playoff competitor head to head, it was the perfect set of circumstances for Cincinnati. But that doesn't mean like the system, you know, made it possible for Cincinnati. If Oklahoma State had gotten that last yard against Baylor, I think Oklahoma State gets in instead of Cincinnati. So it's it's hard to say that the system has been vindicated. It was more of just it was the perfect set of circumstances. There was no choice, no choice at all. Cincinnati had to be in, you know. Otherwise, it, it just would have been uh, corrupt on a scale that even all of us haven't seen before uh, in college football. So it's all a larger way of saying that you know conference championships aren't valued. If we did value conference championships, Baylor would get in over Georgia. Like we all knew that Georgia was gonna get in as soon as it went got to twelve and zero. That even with a loss to Alabama, Georgia would get in. But in terms of what should happen, I think most of us would say that Baylor earned a place at the table much more than Georgia did. Now, of course, we we all thought that when Georgia beat Clemson, that was going to be a heavyweight win, which would make it extremely hard for Georgia to be knocked out of the playoff. But then, of course, when Clemson became a mediocre team for a few weeks and had a you know a pretty ordinary season, well. You can't just uh, uh, evaluate the Georgia win over Clemson as a heavyweight win. No, you have to look at it as a win over a over a very flawed team which lost several games. And so, yeah, if you are comparing resumes, Baylor certainly achieved more than Georgia did. Now, Georgia fans will say, well, Baylor shouldn't have lost to TCU. Well, that's your best argument, but Baylor won a conference championship. Baylor beat a top 10 Oklahoma State team. Baylor beat a top 15 Oklahoma team, Baylor certainly has many more quality, solid wins uh, than Georgia does. Uh, So, you know, we know what should happen, but we all knew what would happen, right? We all knew uh, that Georgia was going to be in if it went 12-1. and So, you know, it's, it's really nothing we haven't seen before. It's nothing we haven't felt before. And these problems just persist. And I would just say, to kind of bring this uh, conversation to a conclusion is that we don't have to have a a massive playoff. We don't. Now, I'm not not saying I like the four-team playoff. No, 
I would rather have a 12-team playoff than a 14-team playoff. You know, for instance, look at the Peach Bowl. Perfect example, right? If the Peach Bowl was a first-round playoff game between, like, a number 7 seed and a number 10 seed, Kenny Pickett and Kenneth Walker are playing, right? They're definitely playing in that game. So that's a, that's a big, important argument for a 12-team playoff. And would a 12-team playoff be better than four? Yes, absolutely, for that reason and a lot of other reasons. But we don't have to have a 12-team playoff. You know, we can do flex scheduling. And let's keep in mind, not only did we see the ultimate example of flex scheduling last year when BYU and Coastal Carolina played that game basically on 72 hours notice, we also saw a bowl game get flex scheduled this year. That Frisco football classic, Miami of Ohio and North Texas, that, that was not part of the original bowl schedule. This is a bowl game that ESPN created out of thin air on the fly. Flex scheduling in the regular season can obviously be done. We are seeing that logistics are not a problem for ESPN, for the member schools. So if we flex, if we gave every team in college football one weekend, which was flex scheduled, like in early to mid-November, you just left an open date. It's a home game one year for a various schools, and then it's a road game the next year. You just leave the date open. We have an off week uh, in the week preceding it, so everyone can kind of take a break, uh, you know, rest, get healthy. Uh, if we flex scheduled one game every year, we could have like a just a super deluxe. Uh, early November Saturday where you have Oklahoma playing Oregon and you have USC playing Ohio State and you have Michigan playing Alabama. Just flex schedule one game every year. That in itself would be, it would have a, a an effect of weeding out teams in the pursuit of a national championship, but you do it within the context of the regular season. You don't need a playoff under that scenario. And then it's just the final point. If you flex schedule one game in November every year and you weed out teams by the time we get to early December, then you just play your normal bowl schedule like 1985. Go back to the 1980s, early 1990s system. You have, you know, all the big bowl games on January 1, just like we used to love growing up, at least for those of us who are of a certain age. You, know, you have the Fiesta Bowl at midday. You have the Rose Bowl mid-afternoon. Uh, you have the Cotton Bowl mid-afternoon. Uh, and then at night, you have the Sugar Bowl on one network, Orange Bowl on the other network. It would be just like old times. You bring back the romance, the tradition, the magic of college football. You know, you'd have fans throwing oranges onto the field when they clinch an Orange Bowl bid. Everybody would be happy to be in, in, his, in his regional bowl game. You, know, you bring that back, the BCS destroyed that where USC fans were not happy to be in the Rose Bowl if it meant not being in the BCS title game. So let's bring back that 1980s feel, that 1980s flavor, that that nostalgia, that warmth. And then to top it off, you put, do a plus one game for the national title after all the bowl games are over. So you do not have to have a playoff. I repeat, you do not have to have a playoff. You can actually just beef up the regular season with flex scheduling, do a 1985-style bowl system, and then just one game after the bowls. It would be absolutely great for college football, but, well, it doesn't seem like the road that we're traveling down. 
All right, Matthew, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, for the last couple questions here in the podcast. Sounds great. Sounds great. Here we go, Matt. I have been on record saying that I thought that Montana State coach Brent Vegan really is the FCS coach of the year. I know he didn't win the Eddie Robinson Award, but I, I really thought that the job that he did at Montana State was really the best in in all of FCS this year. They are the they are the hottest team in the FCS. They've won eleven games this year. He has just done an extraordinary extraordinary job with the Bob with the Bobcats, and I I think that they provide the stiffest test I've seen in a long time for NDSU in the, in the, in the FCS national title game. And it's really, it's interesting for me to watch as a North Dakota state university fan, because Brent vegan was the offensive coordinator at NDSU during many of the national title runs. And also was the offensive coordinator for Carson Wentz and for the Buffalo bills quarterback, the current Buffalo bills quarterback. And so he really is a terrific He's a, he's a terrific coach, and I think he's done a great job. And I, I've been on record saying that this is the last team that I want NDSU to face. So I want to, I'd want i love to get your thoughts on the FCS national title game. The floor is yours. Yeah, so, you know, hey, Montana State bumped, bumped Sam Houston State on the road. Like, that that got my attention. Like, that, that was a statement win, a statement performance. I mean, Sam Houston State's been – you know, almost, almost, not quite, but almost at North Dakota State's level the past few years. And Montana State threw, threw uh, Sam Houston around like a dirty old rag. So that, that was an eye-opener, and that really does lend credence to your thought that, like, this is a really tough matchup for North Dakota State. I think uh, an interesting plot point here is, you know, North Dakota State took James Madison's best punch. Like, that was a slugfest in the Fargo Dome. Uh, over the weekend, and I think the fact that you know that game was really in doubt, like it, like you know NDSU got to that thirteen nothing lead, and it seems though everything was going the Bison's way, but then James Madison scores two touchdowns to take the lead. Whoa, like our dream is slipping away. You know, whoa, whoa, we're supposed to win titles, and I remember when you know you remember the the nineteen ninety one basketball Final Four, and you, you, UNLV was just so far above every other team that year but what you know what happened in that national semifinal against duke was unlv was not used to being in a close game right like it was it was such a foreign experience and you could see the unlv players panic late in that game and duke was so much more in its element so you know to shift this back to uh north dakota state when james madison scored that uh, touchdown to take the 14 13 lead it would have been easy for the bison to get rattled you know like whoa Someone's punching back like this against us in our in our house. Could, you know, guys could have been unsettled, could have hit the panic button, but they didn't. They they redoubled their efforts. They stiffened. They bounced back. They won. I I actually think that North Dakota State winning that game in that way, I think you know you know it, it, winning that that game in that fashion is better than winning it twenty seven nothing. I think that uh, the Bison by taking a, a really tough punch withstanding it, staying in the ring, and winning that game against James Madison in that fashion, you know, a cl close until the very, very end, I think that's going to serve them well against Montana State. Now, I think it's going to be a tough game, but I think that North Dakota State getting that really tough test in the semifinals 
I think that's going to be the difference. I think the Bison win. I think it's going to be, you know, a tip, kind of a typical, uh, you know, back and forth kind of game, 27-24. I think it's going to be extremely close. But I think the Bison have to feel very confident after taking a really big punch uh, and, and still surviving in the semifinals. That's a very good take, Matt. That's a very good take. And I'll just say real quickly, too, I mean, I've been really impressed that Brent Vegan was willing to go with a young quarter, the young quarterback that he has. He has a freshman at quarterback that is just doing an amazing job and is not making any errors and isn't rattled at all. And I, it's just this will be this will be one of those terrific games. I, 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 I think in the, I mean, this will probably, I mean, I, I pro- maybe I sound a little biased, but this may actually be better. Been over half of the half of the half of the uh, half of the bowl games in terms of competitive uh, competitive nature that people will have their eyes on the entire game. I mean, I'm I'm really looking I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's just going to be an outstanding contest. I would be I would be surprised if it doesn't if it's not a, a you know a really tight game heading in the last five minutes. Me, me too, man. Me too. So here we go, man. Your your college football playoff picks. This is our lightning round edition. Give us your winners of the semifinals and give us your winners of the final. Okay. Well, before I do, I just want to say, like, I thought BYU would beat UAB. Nope. I thought Oregon State would beat Utah State. Nope. I thought Appalachian State would beat Western Kentucky. Nope. (laughs) So, like, my bowl picks are pretty much zeros so far. Like, everything I think, it's, it's been the opposite. So make of that what you will. But, you know, just processing everything we've seen in this college football season, guys, you know, it's been it's been a weird season. And, you know, Alabama's there in the playoff, and Alabama's the number one seed. But we know that this is not one of Alabama's best teams. And if Tank Bigsby of Auburn had not run out of bounds late in the Iron Bowl, Alabama's not here. Alabama would have two losses. Alabama, um, you know, would, might might have beaten Georgia anyway, but Alabama would not be in the playoff with two losses, I don't think. Uh, so, you know, Alabama needed a lot of luck to be here. Obviously, made the most of its opportunity against Georgia, um, but uh, you know, this is not one of Alabama's best teams. Uh, so, when these matchups came out and seeing what happened with Alabama this season and seeing what happened with Georgia in the SEC championship game against Alabama, I think the main thing to, to, to look at in these playoff games is I think they're going to be close. And, and I know that we've had so many dud semifinals over the years. They have usually been very non-competitive games. Last year's two semifinals were blowouts. I know that the Ohio State blowout of Clemson in the Sugar Bowl was an upset blowout, but nevertheless, the game still wasn't close. Like we, we, we very rarely get close semifinals, but I think it lines up for close semifinals this year. I think that Cincinnati, you know, is going to be absolutely through the roof with intensity and focus, uh, certainly on defense. Like I think, I don't think uh, Cincinnati is going to score a ton against Alabama's defense. And I think that Nick Saban getting a month to prepare is certainly going to matter. He is the best in the business for a reason. But I do think that Cincinnati's defensive line matches up really well with Alabama's offensive line. Like I don't think I don't think Alabama is going to control that matchup. 
so I'm I'm thinking that uh, Cincinnati Alabama is going to be like a 24-17 type game. I think Alabama wins. I think Alabama has earned that much of the benefit of the doubt. But like I I would be surprised if Alabama blows the door off this game. I think it's going to be close. And then and then Georgia Michigan kind of the same deal. You know Michigan. I was a Michigan skeptic early in the season, and one could still say, you know, hey, like Ohio State was really soft this year. But hey, Michigan took advantage of that. And for Michigan to solve the Ohio State riddle, uh, to, to, you know, to figure out that puzzle, it was always going to be like that. It was always going to be Michigan had to punch Ohio State in the mouth before the Buckeyes had a chance to use their speed. I mean, Ohio State will always beat Michigan and Jim Harbaugh if the game is a track meet, but Michigan was able to turn it into a boxing match. So you got to give Michigan and Jim Harbaugh credit for finally playing the style of game, uh, playing with the tempo uh, and the toughness that they needed to beat Ohio State. So Michigan has proven itself. Harbaugh has proven himself. They finally crossed that threshold. And given what, what Georgia just endured at the hands of Alabama, Again, this is not Nick Saban's best team, and yet that, that, that team, that Alabama team, with all its flaws, Alabama rushed for only six yards against LSU, uh, had a very hard time stopping Arkansas's offense, and then scored just three points in 59 and a half minutes against Auburn. Let's remember that Auburn allowed 40 straight points to Mississippi State, blew a 25-point lead at home. Uh, Alabama, you know, has all these uh, weaknesses, and yet that Alabama team thrashed Georgia. So that tells me that Michigan can certainly stand up to Georgia physically in the trenches. Uh, I think that Georgia's speed on defense at linebacker and in the secondary is going to be a problem for Michigan's offense. But, like, I have no doubt that Aiden Hutchinson and the rest of Michigan's defense are going to put Georgia's offense in a lockbox. Uh, this this game has, to me, uh, like a 17-16, maybe 19-17 feel. I think it's going to go right down to the wire. Um, I'm conflicted in terms of which team to ultimately pick, but I, you know, and I and I do feel kind of ca- like a coward for doing this. But I'm going to give the edge to Georgia just because, you know, what it usually ends up this way, right? It usually ends up with the SEC being on top. Now I I, I don't you know I'm I. I don't think that Georgia uh, has earned the benefit of the doubt in huge games the same way that Alabama has. But I would I would also say that Georgia is legitimately a much more physical team than Ohio State. And uh, the, the fact that Ohio State had a noticeably down year, that still gives me enough hesitation, enough uncertainty to say, you know what, I do think Georgia gets it done against Michigan, but I really view this game as a coin flip. I think it's going to go right down to the very end. So Alabama and Georgia, it's a game that, you know, is going to turn off people outside the southeastern United States if it happens. Um, But I think it's still the game we're probably most likely to get when all is said and done. And if we do get that game, well, you you see the whammy that Alabama has over Georgia, winning not just decisively the last two times they've met, but winning precisely by the score of 41-24. So I guess my prediction would be Alabama 41, Georgia 24, if they meet uh, yet again, this time in Indianapolis for the national championship. So 
uh, you know, what I want and what I hope. There are two different things, but I think I still have to ultimately side with Alabama and Georgia. I do think, however, we're going to get close playoff semifinals this year. We'll see if that happens. Very good take. Very good take. Uh, now we're off to the open microphone. And I'm, I'm just going to use my open microphone to make a quick question before we before we drop the open microphone to you, Matt. Um, I, I want to see whether whether you want to change your pick on one ga- on one game. Uh, Virginia Tech will not have Braxton Burmeister, Knox Kadem, Tavian Robinson, Daryl Bailey. They're in the portal right now, opting out for the bowl game or, or, and, and going to the NFL are Amari Barno, Lasita Smith, Trey Turner, Jermaine Waller, and Jordan Williams. These are significant additions on this on this team. Um, and I have I have concerns about what's actually going to happen at a quarterback for Virginia Tech in this game, and I'm not sure how committed the offensive staff is that's on the way out as well. And uh, and the other thing I'll add here is that Vegas Insider opened with Virginia Tech as a favorite. I think all of these announcements started coming out. I'm chuckling a little bit because I'm thinking. Are we going to be able to field the team? Because I'm expecting other players, I'm, I'm expecting other shoes to drop uh, at, at any point in time, and so that's why I'm kind of chuckling because I'm I'm wondering who's all going to be on the field at time at time in New York. So I'm going to give you an opportunity here to flip if you so desire. I'm not going to flip, and and it, it gets back to an old saying in sports: we often think about who's going to win the game but we often fail to talk about who's capable of losing the game. Maryland is always capable of losing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. Very so, good. And, and let's also say that Virginia Tech seemed to be at a huge disadvantage uh, against Virginia. Didn't matter, right? You know, just when, whenever the, the Hokies play the Hoos, uh, you know, we obviously had that one exception a few years ago with Bryce Perkins being, you know, in God mode. But, you know, for most, um, for all but one of the past uh, 16 years, whenever the Hokies step on the field, they just, everything turns to gold for them. So I, I still think that, you know, against Maryland, they'll be able to, their, their defense will force Maryland to make enough significant mistakes that the offense, uh, you know, won't have to do too much heavy lifting uh, in this game. It's going to be kind of like the uh, Tennessee Titans-Pittsburgh Steelers game on Sunday where if the Titans just committed four straight turnovers deep in their own territory. Pittsburgh's offense didn't do anything but just, you know, going three and out, three and out, three and out. But because those mistakes were deep in uh, Titan territory, Pittsburgh was just able to collect field goals, thank you very much, and win that game. Uh, so that that's kind of like the template for what I see in, in Virginia Tech, Maryland. I'll take it. I'll take it. I hope. I hope. I hope it happens. I hope it happens. Uh, so, open microphone for you, time, Matt. What you got for us, buddy? Yeah. So, you know, as as we come to the end of another college football season, I, you know, let's uh, let's just take note of a few things uh, in a broader context. First of all, name, image, and likeness. No one's no one's dying. No one's getting hurt. It seemed like the world was going to end, but you know. Players are having a chance to market themselves. And I noticed uh, earlier on Sunday, 
uh, just before we came on the air to record this show uh, that an athlete uh, just donated uh, like $30,000 from an NIL deal to either like a hospital or a network of hospitals. Like there's a lot of good that's being done from these NIL deals. And, you know, there was just so much belly aching and moaning from the NCAA and from other powers that be and other commentators about how awful this was going to be and how, you know, how sinful and, and like it just, it, it was, it's how, you know, it was just going to be the end of civilization, the end of culture. And, you know, all that was just so much hot air. It was so much a waste of time. There's so much good being done by a lot of athletes. And even for the athletes who aren't doing philanthropy, like they're, they're making some extra bucks. Uh, Anthony, I saw another story, Anthony Brown, um, the Oregon Ducks quarterback, he bought his offensive lineman uh, like a, a, a product that all of them are going to use from his NIL deal. Like So a, a, a player is helping out teammates, making a, a good faith gesture to them. Like all of this is good. This is good stuff. These are good things happening from the NIL deal. And so as we consider, you know, all the other problems that are going on in, in college sports, all the other issues that we're wrestling with, let's just notice that the NIL has not been harmful. It's 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 opening opportunities for young men. It's giving them more chances to be creative, entrepreneurial. I think that's a pretty good thing. And so let's expand these opportunities even more. And, and as we consider the move to a 12-team playoff, which I think we're going to get, you know, it just, it just increases the amount of money that's going to be made in this business. And I would sincerely like to think that once we get a 12-team playoff, that we will get to a point where we start making it a priority to actually just give players take-home paychecks. No, nothing huge. Like, we're not talking millions of dollars, but like, you get like a $1,000 take-home check for each game you play. Maybe you get like a $2,000 check for each playoff game or each bowl game that you, you play. That might be another way to prevent players, or not prevent, but reduce the instances of players opting out, such as Kenneth Walker and Kenny Pickett in the Peach Bowl, uh, Michigan State Pitt. Um, so, you know, as we consider the success in the early months of NIL, name, image, and likeness, let's just realize that Reform is not something to be feared. Reform is not something that's, which is going to be cancerous or corrosive for college football and the larger theater of college sports. There's more money being made, and there's more money which is in the process of being made. You know, it's, it's through playoff expansion, through you know future TV rights deals to the various conferences. There's plenty of money to go around. We can give players take-home paychecks. I hope people can see that this liberalization, this opening up of opportunity to make money in college sports, get letting this, this uh, river of opportunity flow to the athletes themselves, I hope we can see it's a very positive thing, which is enhancing uh, the, the collegiate football experience uh, for these athletes across the country. Very good take. Very good take. Jeff, you're up, buddy. Hey, I just got a, a quick one. Uh, Comcast Infinity this past week officially carrying the ACC network. Finally, it's it's happened, which is good for the ACC. Uh, definitely an additional revenue stream, a much needed one. But yeah, after months of negotiation, we've talked about it on the past on the podcast several times. It's it the deal has finally been done, and uh, and and 
ACC fans on Comcast are, are getting the ACC network now. Well, and let me ask you guys a question. Like, what is this going to change game availability? Because I know that, you know, which games get selected to be on which network has been a real point of contention. It's been a real sore spot that, uh, you know, uh, like North Carolina State, Wake Forest, uh, or other specific ACC games that should be on like ESPN uh, or or maybe ESPN two instead get relegated to ACC Network. Other games have gotten lost in the shuffle. Do you think that uh, the Comcast situation is going to rectify that problem? Uh, just take, walk me through that dynamic if you can. I mean, well, I, I oh, I, I was just going to say I, I think it does in in a lot of ways because. You know, games that were ending up on the ACC network, especially like, you know, the Wake Forest, NC State, um, when Boston College was undefeated, you had Clemson, BC, and Virginia Tech, Notre Dame. Um, you know, when they were on the ACC network, you were basically losing millions of people who could watch the game because they weren't on Comcast. But now that that Comcast is on board, um, that that level of distribution is is definitely mitigated and and I think you know the ACC network will now have I'm not sure the actual numbers but um, it's it's not going to be far off than having a game on the SEC network or or ESPN2 um, now that Comcast is on board so I, I think having them on board kind of covers two you know both situations you put a game on there it's still going to get national coverage because of Compa- Comcast being the Comcast deal being finalized. The the other thing I'd add, Matt, is that um, at least for Virginia, Comcast is the dominant cable provider. And and Jeff touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's really more explicit and really more, you know, really more real in Virginia when you don't have the ACC network on Comcast.